John chapter 10, verse, and beginning of verse 22, is where we're going to begin our reading this morning. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around Him and said to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in My Father's name bear witness about Me, but you do not believe because you are not among My sheep. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone Me? The Jews answered Him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If He called them gods to whom the Word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of Him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of My Father, then do not believe Me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe Me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in Me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest Him, but He escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first, and there He remained. And many came to Him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in Him there. Well, they're at the Feast of Dedication, and what this uh, particular holiday is for the Jewish people is it's what we usually gets referred to now as a Hanukkah, or the Feast of Lights is what the, the Jewish people call it. It's also called the Feast of Dedication as it is here. And what it looks back to is a time in Israel's history where they dedicated the temple. It's talking about a time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, the, the completion of the Old Testament, God basically went silent. And we have what we call the 400 silent years where God did not give any new revelation until the beginning of the New Testament times. And in those 400 years, there was some history of Israel going on. And it's recorded in some books that are part of the Apocrypha, specifically the Maccabees. During this 400 year time period, he had this Syrian ruler, a Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was trying to to direct his kingdom and the people toward uh, what they call Hellenization, right? He, he wanted them all to become more and more Greek-influenced. And so, obviously, the Jewish people uh, did not worship the same gods as the Greek people did, and they did not have the same religion, the same rules and laws and things like that. And So he tried to force them to comply. And so one of the things that he did is he came in in, in about 170 B.C., and he ransacked the place and took over the Jewish temple and desecrated the temple. He offered a pig, which remember a pig is an unclean animal in the Jewish diet. And he took a pig and he offered it as a sacrifice on the altar. And then he set up a, a statue of Zeus within the Holy of Holies. And so he was trying to turn it from a Jewish temple into a pagan temple. He outlawed the Jewish people to offer sacrifices unto God and commanded that they make sacrifices unto the pagan gods that the Greeks worshipped. 
And he also commanded that they not do external religious things that was part of their religion, like the keeping of the Sabbath. He was making their life miserable. Well, what happens was you have this family of priests, Mattathias' sons, and they kind of went into hiding a little bit. And they started doing what we would call like guerrilla warfare, right? To try to lead a revolt and try to fight back. And, and uh, at one point under Judas Maccabees, they were successful. And they were able to go in and take back over the temple. And they took out the statue of Zeus and they recommitted the temple to the worship of God. It's that dedication of the temple that they're celebrating on that feast of dedication. Well, it's this that Jesus is back at the temple for. And Jesus is in Solomon's colonnade and it says that they circle around him. And they say, if you're the Christ, then tell us plainly. Now, that's a ridiculous statement. It's kind of like, remember, remember back in John 6, when Jesus takes the one boy's lunch and He feeds over 5,000 people with it. And then He tells them, look, you need to be doing the work of God. And they say, well, what is the work of God? And, and He says, the work of God is to believe in the One whom He sent. And they turn around and they say to Him, well, then show us a sign. Like they didn't just see the one that He just did. Right? It's that kind of thing again. When they gather around Jesus and they say, tell us plainly, at this point in our study of John, we have to recognize that that is just a ridiculously absurd statement. He has absolutely told them plainly. He's used these I am statements about who he is. In fact, at one of them, when he said before Abraham was, I am, they wanted to kill him then because he was blaspheming. In fact, at different places, and we think back all the way back to chapter 5 and verse 18, it says this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Well, you can't on the one hand say, look, we're going to kill you because you're making yourself equal with God, and then turn around and say, you know what, you really haven't spoken plainly to us about this. If you were going to kill Him because He was claiming to be God, well then, He was pretty plain about it. In fact, when they made those arguments, he did not back off. He didn't say, oh, no, you misunderstand me. He didn't say, oh, no, that's not what I meant. Actually, he doubled down on it. Remember, we looked at that and we even figured that the time that he did these healings and things on the Sabbath day was to generate this conversation. When the Jewish people came to him and said, look, you're breaking the Sabbath, what was his response? I'm in charge of the Sabbath because my father's working and so I'm working. He used that to point to the fact that He is the Son of God. He's at one with the Father. And so He is God in the flesh. He claimed to have the rule over the Sabbath. He claimed to be the fulfillment of all that was spoken by Moses. They said, look, we know that God spoke to Moses. And Jesus said, yeah. And you know what? He was talking about me. He says, in fact, when the judgment day comes and you stand before God, you know who's going to judge you? Moses. Because he wrote about me. Jesus saying all this stuff pointed to me, he had been speaking incredibly clearly. In fact, when they press him on this issue, he never backs down. He always takes another step forward. And he has been very clear that he is the chosen one that was sent by God as prophesied through Moses and the other prophets. In fact, all the Scriptures pointed to him. He said, you think that in, through your knowledge of the Scriptures that you have life but the Scriptures are talking about Me and you won't come to Me that you might have life. He really could hardly be more clear than He has been about who He is. He even tells them, as He does again at this point right here, look, just look at what I'm doing. If nothing else, just for the work's 
sake themselves. Now, he does use the word works here, not signs. Remember, a lot of the way through John, we trace his signs. Signs was very limited. Signs was used of things that were miracles. Right? The works of Christ is broader. It includes his miracles, like walking on water and feeding the people with the boys' lunch and turning the water into wine at the feast and the healings that he was performing. It includes those signs, but it's beyond that. It also goes to the, just the works of compassion that he did for other people for His teaching that He conducted as well in His ministry. So His works would actually be everything that He's doing. In all of those things, Jesus says, look, just look at the works of My life. It's kind of like you know that old saying, actions speak louder than words. Well, if actions speak louder than words, Jesus is screaming. Look at the things that I've been doing and accomplishing. That screams to you that I am from God. And so this idea that He's being unclear is absurd. But you know, as they try to point out a lack of clarity within Jesus, Jesus actually kind of flips it and points to a lack of belief on their part. They're not really looking for anything that demonstrates the truth of who Christ is. What they're looking for is for Him to say something in just the right way so that they can get Him in trouble and end up taking His life. You see, these people are here to exercise judgment on Christ But Christ is turning it around and saying, look, you're really the ones that are under the judgment here. It's not really that I'm unclear. It's that you're obstinate in your unbelief. That I'm here demonstrating the life of God to you and you will not submit to it. Well, it's interesting that as we come to this passage, within this passage, there is so much understanding of salvation and how it works. And there's mystery in it as well. There's some things that are hard to reconcile a little bit. And we, we've wrestled for centuries on trying to figure out how these things come together, but they do. Um, but it's hard for us to get our minds around. In fact, I don't think we can do it in completion. I think there's a biblical tension that's supposed to be there between a couple of these things that we're going to go through. But what we see in this teaching, and Jesus again brings the illustration of a shepherd, and that's what we're going to look at this morning is the, the doctrine of the shepherd. What do we learn from it? What does he teach? Well, the first thing that we see in the doctrine of the shepherd is we see very clearly human responsibility. Verses 25 and 26 It says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And then in verses 37 and 38, he says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. At the very beginning of the conversation, Jesus is holding these people accountable. They are responsible for their unbelief. He's saying, look, the problem isn't my clarity. The problem is your heart. You are unbelieving. You refuse to believe. And then he goes into this passage because they say you're blaspheming because you make yourself God. And what Jesus does is he argues from the lesser to the greater. And he says, look, even in the Bible, you look in the Old Testament, he's quoting from Psalm chapter 82 and verse 6. And he says, even in there, it uses the word God, small g, God, to refer to human leaders. It was referring to judges, and it referred to them as gods. And he says, so if the word of God uses the word God, small g, to refer to human leaders, then if I, and he's not really comparing himself to the judges as much as he's contrasting himself to the judges. If he's the promised one, the coming one, if those people being called God's small g, and I am the one consecrated by God and sent by God, 
And if I declare myself to be the Son of God, where is the infraction? Is there really an infraction there? And the answer obviously is no. He's not distancing himself from God. He's not saying he's not that. He's saying it's a proper use of the, the word. He should be ascribed Godhood because he's the consecrated one. He's the sent one. And so this is a very fitting term for him. But he brings it back around to the same responsibility at the end. Look at the works that are before you. It's all demonstrated. You are responsible for your own heart, for your own belief. You're showing yourself to be corrupt. You're showing yourself to be not from God and not a part of my sheep because of your unbelief. And so there's a human responsibility here. Now, I'd like to make something very clear because there's a huge uh, misnomer out there within Christianity, and I hear it all the time. Because people, when talking about salvation and putting your faith in Christ and, or, the, or the nature of man, they often talk about the free will of man. That is not true. That is not scriptural. I guess, let me say it this way. Maybe it depends on what you mean by free will. If you mean by free will that man can make his own choice, then that's true. But what is the will? The will, the volitional part of mankind is that which is inside of man. It's what you want to take place or what you want to happen or what you desire or have a hunger for. That's what is the will of man. I do believe that the Bible teaches that mankind had a free will. We had a free will in Adam and Eve, but it was corrupted very quickly. When they ate the fruit that they were not supposed to eat of, their own will became corrupted and sin came into the world and they became sinners. And we're all prodigy of them. We're all born of Adam. And so we inherit that sinful nature from him. And so our will is not free. It is corrupt. Our will is enslaved to sin. And so when we think of this idea of human responsibility, are we responsible? Yes. But you know what we also have, unfortunately, is we also have human depravity. We see that in these people. Because they have the works of God on display right in front of them and they absolutely reject it. There's no appetite in them for God. Let me explain will this way maybe. I often think of myself and taste. Because I eat a lot of different things, but there are very common things that I just don't like. Right? I don't like coffee. I don't like eggs, unless they're in cookies or cake, something like that. Well, here's the thing. Both of those things I wish I liked. Because everywhere you go, breakfast... Eggs are like top of the menu for breakfast. I always have to order things and tell them to leave the eggs off. And everywhere you go, they're offering you coffee. And so I wish I liked those two things, but I just, I just can't. They don't taste good to me. I just don't like them. If I'm thirsty and there's coffee there, I'm just still thirsty. Because it doesn't even uh, cross my mind to take a drink of the coffee to quench my thirst. It's not thirst quenching, it's tongue scraping is what that is. And so it just, uh, it just doesn't even cross my mind. So there's just nothing in me to make me will a cup of coffee or an egg. And, and see, that's, that's the problem with mankind. With mankind, the Bible says there's nothing in us that makes us desire God. We're depraved. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our will is not free. Our will is in, is in bondage. It's enslaved to sin. We saw that earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 8. Remember what Jesus said to him in verses 31 through 36? As Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered. They didn't like this idea of him telling them that they would be set free because it meant it implied that they're in bondage, which they were. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. 
It's a selective memory. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6 focuses on that a lot. And you know what? That's what we see when we look at the description of mankind within the Bible. tells us that nobody seeks after God. We've all gone astray. We've all become worthless. We're depraved in that way. There's nothing in us. There's no passion in us that we have for God. God has to put that there. Our wills are enslaved. The Apostle Paul would say about himself in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 7 of the book of Romans, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Our will is corrupt. Stop and think about it in a practical sense. If the will of man is actually free, means you can either go good or you can go bad. You could go either way. Why is it that Jesus aside, 100% of us go the wrong way? Other than Christ, there's not one person in the history of the world that has gone good. That looks a lot more like a will that is enslaved to sin than a will that is free to choose either good or bad. Now, that does not diminish our human responsibility. The Bible is very clear that we are responsible for our actions. We are responsible for our beliefs. And we're responsible for our unbelief. It's our own corruption that is because of that. When I say human responsibility, I do not mean a free will. Man has a will and he can make his own decisions. But you know what? His will is going to follow his corruption unless God intervenes. And that's what we're going to get to shortly. Back in John chapter 8 and verse 37, it says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Because notice what he says, my word finds no place in you. What is he saying? They have no appetite for what he's telling them. They have no appetite for him as the Son of God as he comes before him. They are determined to not believe. And also in verse 43, he says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And so as we look at this passage here this morning, what are the things that we see taught in this understanding of this shepherd-sheep relationship right off the bat? The first thing that we see is we have human responsibility. We are responsible, just like Jesus is holding those people responsible for their belief, or their unbelief, I should say. But let's not confuse that with free will, because their free is not just neutral, can go either good or bad. Their, their will, as Scripture teaches, is in bondage to sin. And as the history of the world and the history of human beings demonstrates, our will is corrupt. Well, then, is all hope lost? No, all hope is not lost. But the reason it is not lost is because of divine sovereignty. It's already been opened to us by John way back in the first chapter. Verses 11 through 13 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That would be the depravity kicking in. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so some people would believe. How did that happen if we're depraved? Well, he goes on to say he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What happened was God's will kicked in. Mankind in his own will rejects God, but God's will kicked in. And now don't get me wrong, because man's will is going to begin to line up. Because what happens is, as God 
in His sovereign choice, chooses us, and He begins to draw us to Himself, our will steps in line and conforms to God's will, and we freely choose. You see, I don't mean to come to the point and say where God chooses and you don't have a choice. That's absolutely not the truth. The only way to have eternal life before God and enter into this relationship with the shepherd is to believe. And when you believe, that's an act of your will. Your will comes in line with God's will and you put your faith in Christ. Well, in John chapter 6, Jesus had given some hard sayings to the people and He teaches them in verses 37 through 40. says, All that the Father gives Me will come to Me and whoever comes to Me I will never cast out. So where does it start with? Again, the will of God. Because it says, All that the Father gives Me. But then we find that all that the Father gives Me, what will happen to Him? He says, They will come to Me. In their will, they will turn in their will and come and embrace Christ. And whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And then in verses 44 and 45, He says, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. So you see, He's taught us clearly coming up to this point in John, back in John chapter 6. If you remember back there, He says, God the Father is the one whose will is, originates this. Then God draws the people to Himself And he says, everybody whom the Father gives me. We're going to see the same thing when we get up to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And then in verses 6 through 8, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. And I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and that they have believed that you sent me. And then in verse 9, he says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so you see, we have these two things, these amazing things coming together. We have human responsibility, and we have divine sovereignty. And how do those come together? I don't know. It's, it's a mystery. I can see it absolutely unfolding in Scripture. But how do they... We've been discussing that for 2,000 years. Ever since these kind of passages were first written. The Apostle Paul, when he deals with it in Romans 9, 10, and 11, three chapters he deals with it. And he says, look, you're going to have a problem with this. You're going to say, look, if, it's, if God wills who comes to Him, if He accomplishes this, then how does He still find fault? You're going to have a problem with this. But you know what? He doesn't even offer a solution. He just says, but who are you to answer back to God? And He moves on. God feels no need to make it more acceptable to us. What we need to do is just recognize the truth that He gives us. And it's in there that we find the grace of God. Because you know what this means? This means that God didn't just wipe the slate clean and then whoever's good enough to come to Him, whoever's good enough to believe in Him, gets saved. No. It means that actually that there's nothing good in me that God chose me by. He just chose me according to His own sovereign will. And that's grace. That's all grace. That's a deep grace. 
an amazing grace. You know, we see it unfold in, in Acts. In Acts chapter 2, in verses 22 and 23, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We see both things together right in this couple verses here. Because notice what he says. He's talking about Christ dying on the cross for us. And how does he describe that? He says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus going to the cross was God's doing. It was God's plan put into action by God, accomplished by God. It was divine work. But notice at the same time, He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless people. In other words, the people that actually betrayed Christ the people that nailed Him to the cross, the people that sentenced Him to that death, the people that worked behind the scenes to get Him sentenced to that death, were they let off the hook because this was all the plan of God? Absolutely not. They were exercising of their own, do I want to say free will? Free agency, let's call it that. They were exercising their own corrupt will, and by their own will, they saw Christ crucified and killed on that cross. And they're absolutely guilty of that. But in doing that, they completely fulfilled the plan and work of God. And the same goes the other way. When we respond to God in repentance and put our faith in Christ, the day that I accepted Christ, did I act against my will to accept Christ? No. By the time I embraced Christ, I loved Him. And I was excited to embrace Him. And my will conformed to God's will and carried out God's plan and God's choosing. It's an amazing thing. It's a, it's a mystery. How does it happen? It's beyond us. You know, you could say the same thing about the Word of God. A man sits down and writes out Peter, James, John, Matthew, Isaiah, Jeremiah. They sit down and with a pen, they write out these words. And when you read their words, you can see their personalities. The writings of John, all you can tell they're written by the same guy. The writings of Paul, you can tell were not written by John. But when they get done writing them, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit had bore them along and what we have is the words of God, not the words of man. Amazing. What about our own, not just our salvation, but what about our growth? God gives us His Word so that we can obey His commands and follow His principles and, and follow Him and grow and learn. And He commands us to do just that. But then at the same time, it says, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So is my Christian growth a result of me obeying God or is it a result of God working in and through me? Yes. All of it. It's an amazing thing. And as these people that are listed in the book of Acts, as they set about to kill Christ, and they're acting in their own will, by their own stubborn rebellion against God, they just lined right up with God's purpose. And it accomplished. At the end of the day, to eat, I'm hoping to ease your mind a little bit with this. Romans chapter 11. I remember wrestling and wrestling with this understanding. How does divine sovereignty and God choosing and human responsibility, our being responsible, how do these things fit together? Here's the deal. I was reading through Romans 9, 10, and 11 one day, which, like I said earlier, those three chapters are all about this. And I was reading through them and I was wrestling with trying to get my mind around this whole issue. And I finally came to the end of Romans chapter 11. It gave me great peace. It says in Romans 11:33 through 36, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And I read through that, and so after wrestling with those three chapters for some time and reading that last part, all of a sudden I felt better about it. I said, you know what? The Apostle Paul just wrote about it for three chapters and he didn't understand it either. Because at the end, he just magnifies God. And he says, look at God. Who can know Him to completion? All these things that, we've been, that he'd been discussing, he says, it's just a magnitude of the glory of God. The point is this. Look, if our God is small enough that you can get your mind completely around Him, then He's pretty small. There are always going to be things about God that you're just not going to be able to quite get. Always things about God that are going to remain some kind of a mystery. And this is what I think these truths demonstrate within the Word of God. They demonstrate the mystery of God. Human responsibility, is it scriptural? Absolutely. Divine sovereignty, scriptural? Better believe it. Absolutely. Very clearly so. How do they come together in this mystery of salvation? I think it's just beyond us. But you know what time it is when we recognize that we have something beyond us within the Word of God? It's time to celebrate that. Because where does Paul land with that? To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen.